Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Well, let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Oh, looks like we hit on World War II again. Yeah, that seems to be a large section of the target. Let's see, specifically, we're going to be talking about some of the Allied deceptions that went on before and during D-Day. Let's get started. First of all, this topic involves more operations than a busy surgeon. <laughs> the main deception operation and then a host of sub-operations playing off that, all designed to fool the Germans about the actual invasion operation. So we'd better run through some names so we can know who's who and what's what. The operation to invade France and establish an Allied presence there was called Operation Overlord. If you paid any attention at all in school, you already knew that. The first phase of Overlord the actual amphibious invasion into Normandy to establish a beachhead was Operation Neptune. This, of course, is usually referred to as D-Day. These are what the Allies were trying to deceive the Germans about. Now, the overarching deception for this was known as Operation Bodyguard, which was comprised of a host of sub-operations. I'll only be focusing on a handful of these this episode. So away we go. By the time the war hits 1944, Germany knew that an invasion of Europe was coming. They just didn't know where, and having to defend the entire coast of Northwest Europe left their forces spread thin. This was what the Allies wanted to take advantage of. Once Normandy was decided upon as the invasion site, Bodyguard went to work. The idea here was to deceive the Germans as to when and where the invasion was coming, and with how many troops. To do this, three general goals were set for bodyguard. It had to sell alternate areas as the main target of the invasion, it had to mask the actual date, and even when the Normandy landings happen, it had to sell those as a feint in order to keep German reinforcements tied up, waiting for the real invasion. To accomplish these three general goals, Bodyguard and its sub-operations would be implemented using three basic strategies. The first would be intelligence. Since the beginning of the war, the British anti-espionage operation, known as Double Cross, had been extremely successful. German agents in Britain were rounded up and many were turned into double agents. These double agents would be used to feed a lot of false intel to the Germans. And don't forget about the ultra-secret. That was the name given to the breaking of the German Enigma Code by the British codebreakers at Bletchley Park. Unknown to the Germans, the British could read their seemingly unbreakable coded messages. This let the Allies know what the Germans were up to and how well their deceptions were working on them. The second strategy was the use of false radio traffic. This had been employed by the Allies earlier in the war a number of times and was to be used again. 
the idea being that the Germans might notice an increase in radio traffic in a particular area and draw the erroneous conclusion that a lot of activity was happening in an area where it wasn't. The last strategy was to use visual deceptions. I'll explain these as we go later on. So for now, let's get into the actual sub-operations. We'll start with Operation Fortitude, which itself was divided into two parts, Fortitude North and Fortitude South. Both were designed to fool the Germans as to the location of the invasion by creating phantom armies to threaten these alternate spots. And once the invasion actually began, these phantom armies would, as I said before, create the illusion that Normandy was simply a feint for the real invasion coming from them. Fortitude North was meant to threaten an invasion of Norway. To do this, a phantom army called the British Fourth was to be used, supposedly based up in Scotland. In actuality, this phantom army had been created the previous year for a different operation, so the British just decided to use it again. Fortitude North was mainly carried out using double agents and false radio traffic, because the British believed that German reconnaissance planes would never be able to get that far north into Scotland without being intercepted. Two double agents, codenamed Mutt and Jeff, were instrumental in feeding the Germans all sorts of false information about the fake Fourth Army. The BBC helped as well by broadcasting news and sporting event scores and wedding announcements to the non-existent troops up there in Scotland. Fortitude North was so successful that by late spring of 44, Hitler had 13 army divisions in Norway. To help further this deception, that spring also saw British commando raids into Norway to simulate preparations for an invasion. They targeted industrial targets, military outposts, and the power grid. The Royal Navy also increased their activities in the North Sea. As for the false radio traffic used in Fortitude North, that got its own code name, Operation Sky. It was overseen by Colonel R.M. McLeod and began broadcasting in late March and became fully operational by early April, broadcasting a high volume of false traffic. As for Fortitude South, it was meant to threaten an invasion at Calais. Now on paper, this would be the obvious site for a cross-channel invasion. Here the English Channel is narrowest, so an invasion fleet would have the shortest water crossing. On top of this, once a landing was effected, Calais had the port facilities to support a large influx of troops, and it offered a more direct route into Germany than from the Normandy area. Because of this, German General Erwin Rommel, who was in charge of defending the Atlantic Wall, took steps to make sure that this area was very heavily fortified. Again, we're going to see the use of a phantom army. This time, it would be the fictional 1st U.S. Army Group under the command of General George Patton. It would be positioned in southeast England right across from Calais. You see, any massive invasion coming out of England would necessitate the staging of various units like all around the country. Allied planners knew 
that the Germans held Patton in very high regard and were assuming he'd be the one to spearhead the cross-channel invasion whenever it came. Hence, placing Patton and his fake army in the southeast caused the Germans to deduce that that would be where the invasion would hit. The 21st Army Group under Montgomery, which was real and was the genuine Normandy invasion force, could be played off as support for Patton being forced to stage further from the invasion point. Now understand, Fortitude South was a rather subtle undertaking. Yes, double agents were used, but never did the Allies leak false plans to the Germans concerning the actual invasion. Instead, they simply portrayed this false order of battle and let the Germans draw their own logical but erroneous conclusions. Yes, false radio traffic was used, along with some dummy aircraft and dummy landing crafts. Patton even traveled around with a photographer making inspections throughout the area. Contrary to popular belief, we don't see as many false vehicles being used as one would think, like the famous inflatable tanks. They had actually been used a lot more in some earlier deceptions. Looking at recent scholarship, we see that perhaps the Allies even overestimated Germany's abilities to conduct aerial reconnaissance, and perhaps all these props served little purpose. They make for a good story, and when you're dealing with something as high stakes as invading France, why take any chances? Moving on from fortitude, we now look at some of the tactical military deceptions carried out during the actual invasion on June 6th. These would be operations Glimmer, Taxable, and Big Drum. I love those names. Glimmer and Taxable were similar to each other. Taxable was to simulate the movement of an invasion force toward an area about 50 miles away from the invasion beaches. Glimmer was to do the same at Calais. To accomplish this, RAF bombers would fly routes while dropping chaff. This was thin strips of aluminum that would spoof German radar into believing a large fleet of ships was on the way. Below this, small boats would tow radar reflective balloons and simulate the expected radio traffic of an invasion fleet. Now stop and think for a second. How can a fast flying plane, even one as ponderous as a bomber, simulate the slow speed of a ship on radar? To accomplish that, the RAF bomber pilots had to fly incredibly precise tracks. Check this out. The bombers were staged at two mile intervals parallel to the coast. When they reached this position, the fancy flying began. The bomber would fly directly toward the coast for precisely two and a half minutes, dropping chaff, or what the British originally called window, at 15 second intervals. After the two and a half minutes, the plane would turn around and fly away from the coast for precisely two minutes and 10 seconds before turning around for the next circuit. And all of this had to be done while maintaining the same speed throughout. The idea here is that by flying these circuits, the chaff cloud the planes would be dropping would move toward the coast at about the same speed as a fleet of ships. 
taxable was carried out by Lancaster bombers from the famous number 617 squadron, the Dam Busters. Beneath them were 18 small boats. As I said, the boats would be towing the radar reflective balloons and simulating the radio traffic. And when these boats reached a point seven miles out from the beach, they were to simulate a landing attempt by running fast to within two miles of the beach and then turn around and retreat using a smoke screen to mask their movement. Taxable began eh, a bit after midnight on June 6th and lasted until around 5 in the morning. Glimmer was conducted by short Sterling bombers from the number 218 Gold Coast Squadron with 12 small boats below them. It too ran during a similar time frame in the early hours of the 6th. As for Operation Big Drum, it was similar to Glimmer and Taxable, but it didn't use any chaff-dropping planes. It consisted of four harbor defense motor launches whose job was to create a distraction on the western flank of the actual invasion. They were to operate radar jamming equipment while moving to within two miles of the coast and were tasked with staying there until dawn. When they reached two miles offshore, the Germans didn't respond to them at all. So they moved the half mile closer. With still no response from the Germans, and with the sun coming up, they turned around and went home. The cool thing about these three operations, Glimmer, Taxable, and Big Drum, apart from their names, was that every man involved made it home safely. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for the last operation I'm going to be talking about. That would be Operation Titanic. Titanic was to be carried out the night of June 5th to the 6th by the Royal Air Force and the SAS, and is probably the most off-the-wall deception of D-Day. It called for 500 dummy parachutists to be dropped into France, obviously far away from the actual Normandy drop zones. The idea was to deceive the Germans into thinking a large airborne force had parachuted in thus keeping some German troops away from the beachheads of the actual invasion. The dummy paratroopers were about three to four feet high. Now for those of us who grew up watching the classic film The Longest Day, I'm sorry to say that the real dummies didn't look anywhere as good as those in the film. From the pictures I've seen, they looked like kind of a cross between a poorly constructed scarecrow and a sock puppet. Apart from its parachute, noisemakers, codenamed pintails, were attached to each dummy to simulate rifle fire. And each dummy also had a small time charge to destroy it and give the appearance that the paratrooper had burned his chute after landing. Titanic was divided into four sub-operations, designed to hit four different areas behind enemy lines. Three of the four were actually carried out that night, the fourth being canceled at the last minute, so only about 450 of the dummies were dropped. Each of these sub-operations saw not only the dummy paratroopers dropped, but actual live SAS agents as well. The drop planes also used chaff to mess with German radar. Now these SAS agents had a few objectives for when they landed. Some groups were to find and engage the Germans in a firefight, but being sure to allow some of the enemy to escape, 
in the hope that they'd report this big airborne assault. Other SAS groups carried sound equipment and played loud recordings of men yelling and weapons fire to create the illusion of a larger number of paratroopers landing. Operation Titanic went off as planned and did keep some German troops away from the beaches for a while. The cost of this operation was the loss of two aircraft and their crews and eight SAS agents. These agents were either killed in action or executed later by the Germans at Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Wow, that's sure a lot of operations we've talked about. How successful were they? Well, each one had varying degrees of success, but the important thing here is that they all contributed in some way to the success of the D-Day invasion. And as I said at the beginning of this episode, these were only a handful of the deceptions the Allies used. There were others, but talking about those, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends about it. And I very much look forward to talking with you again in our next episode.